Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the hill country of Central Texas. I'm Amos Fox, and this is Revolution in Military Affairs. On today's episode, we have Professor Anthony King. Anthony is a professor of war studies at the University of Exeter. Uh, prior to that, is the professor of war studies at the University of Warwick uh, for several years. Anthony has published uh, several notable books to include a book on urban warfare that's uh, been quite influential in the past few years, and then prior to that, a book on command, in addition to several other publications, uh, both papers, academic papers, uh, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles, and uh, other books. Tony, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and I always enjoy the opportunity to get to chat with you. You're one of my favorite uh, favorite people to talk to about uh, war and warfare because I think you're one of the few people out there that's actually got a, a clear-sighted view on things and doesn't let uh, any sort of ideology get in the way of understanding uh, the truth about uh, the conduct of war. And so with that, uh, I'd just like to start off by asking you a question about the future of war. Um, what's it look like in your mind's eye and why, what dynamics do you think will cause it to play out the way that you're, that you're foreseeing? Well, th thanks for the invite to come on board and, um, it's always great to talk and, and, um, likewise, it's always lovely to talk to you. So in terms of future of warfare, I mean, obviously, um, it might be worth dividing future of interstate warfare from future of counterinsurgency, although those two things, um, uh, go together and and particularly high high intensity from lower intensity 
warfare. Uh, but let, 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 let's look at, since interstate warfare is becoming much more uh, significant, uh, much more in people's minds, let, let's maybe concentrate on that. Um, so what do I, what do I think um, interstate warfare and particularly land warfare obviously is where i focus on looks like well i mean it won't be surprising to say um i think the first point here is i think that any warfare in the future any land warfare in the future between major states is likely to be highly urbanized and we've discussed before the reasons for this and um it might be worth repeating them so there's three classic arguments that you'll get in the literature firstly that the world's urbanized um 3.5 billion people live in cities and urban areas now um urban area provides excellent defensive uh, against surveillance and targeting um systems um and, and those are correct those are correct and right but of course the third element that i've emphasized throughout my work on urban warfare is force size and actually i think this really especially when you move to the issue of interstate warfare this actually becomes a really critical issue uh, because it changes the geometry of land campaigns we move from a frontal lineal geometry which typified the 20th century mass very large mass armies were able to form fronts and wanted to form fronts to um to uh, deploy all of their combat power those fronts were punctuated by um, urban areas, but most of the combat power, because the armies were so large, was out in the field. So they met in the field and the largest battles were in the field. Urban was a the, the subordinate form of warfare. You move to the 21st century and you've got essentially a reversal of the geometries. The forces are very small, so they tend to converge on decisive locations. They can't form very large and dense fronts. Uh, where are those 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 strategic locations? They're almost always inside urban areas. So my first point would be, um, I think um, fighting intense, high intensity interstate warfare is very likely to converge on urban areas. Now, Ukraine is interesting uh, because I just make a slight qualification of that. I still think the argument about converging on urban areas um, is validated by this, the Ukraine, Russia-Ukraine war. But when we get quite small towns, for instance, Bakhmut, and you get a concentration of really quite significant forces, 30,000 Ukrainian forces seem to defend it. The figures on the Russians is very uncertain. Certainly 30,000, up, up to 50, 60,000. And Bakhmut is only a small town of 70,000 inhabitants. And there you get a kind of medieval operation where there's siege lines extend outside or an early modern um, uh, op uh, siege operation where the siege lines actually extend out beyond uh, the urban areas and of course the actual geography of Bakhmut inside a hollow essentially meant that the high ground around it became absolutely critical to the maintenance of fortress Bakhmut itself so there's quite a lot of fighting as we saw uh, uh, in terms of footage um, posted footage in field in trench systems in the field which of course various people said looked like Verdun. Yeah. yeah. But note it had converged on Bakhmut. And I think obviously the Russians and the Ukrainians are now in a sort of frontal system, but note note the the density is very low, and you essentially get three areas where the forces are converging. And of course, what's the point? 
eventually this counteroffensive, in my view, and I think probably yours, will, if it's to be decisive, will end up in a massive urban battle around Tokmut or Melitopol. So yeah. first point, it's, it's going to be urbanised. Second point related to that, and no surprise here, defence becomes the stronger form of warfare, massively stronger form of warfare, because defending these urban areas uh, uh, amplifies your force numbers. You haven't got that many forces, but it, it really massively amplifies your force numbers. And so it makes defence um, very significantly advantaged. And, and because of that, a couple of other things follow. Maneuver becomes very, very difficult to actually not really relevant or impossible. And attritional fires, attrition executed particularly through fires and through long range fires becomes really important. Um, and it might be just worth saying about maneuver. Um, certainly you're gonna still get attacking, um, but note the form of the attack is likely to take a series of bite and hold operations, both at the kind of campaign operational level where an army trying to attack will degrade an enemy and then make a rapid advance and seize and hold a key bit of terrain, probably a town or a city, um, and then a, a period of stasis. So traditional 20th century manoeuvre where you manoeuvre into the enemy's space in a kind of close fight. So an armoured brigade or division gets into the rear or flank and does some serious destruction with its own close combat power. That kind of um, paradigm seems to be much less likely in the current environment. So what I'd say to summarize, urbanized, positional, attritional seem to me um, to be some of the key characteristics of contemporary warfare and, a, and an even higher dependence upon firepower and firepower in the deep, especially. Yeah, that's uh, uh, very much uh, along the same lines of thinking as you there, as I, uh, as I think about the future. What do you think is, so as we talk about the increased uh, likelihood of urbanization, there, there is a reluctance in many Western militaries, um, A, to accept that as reality, but B, also then to say, okay, but then what, you know? So then do we have to go in and clear the urban area? Um, do we conduct some sort of siege or micro siege? So how do you address the urban problem in the future? Because what, what, you, what you don't want having happen if you're a Western military is you have to then step off into that urban area. And so for me personally, as I think about this problem, I think what you get, what you're likely going to see is an increase in, in, in the use of proxies when it comes to urban war in the future, uh, because states are going to want to offset that human cost because it's going to be a significant human cost. And you saw that, I think, in many, uh, in many regards in Bakhmut with Russia, Russia used the Wagner Group as a an, an auxiliary force a, and in lieu of actor, in lieu of their own forces, which they're trying to protect because they're actually holding what Russia really cares about, which is that land bridge. They're using purposeful attrition to grind down uh, the Ukrainians in places like Bakhmut. And this goes to this idea that Svechin put forward. He, you know, when he wrote his book Strategy, the idea of purposeful attrition uh, was was a real thing. I say all that to say. How do you think about uh, what are military forces likely going to have to do as it relates to addressing urban more uh, problems in the future? Yeah, well, th thanks for this. So, so I mean, obviously, the the ultimate goal. Uh, I mean, I I, I got to say, I, I find quite a lot of. I mean, I 
find quite a lot, I'm going to say something outrageous. I find quite a lot of Sun Tzu not quite as profound um, as as some other scholars and commentators. And I suspect that's because I perhaps missed the historical reference point. I think if it's situated in the time that it was written in, I'm thought sure it was incredibly profound. Um, but I mean, Sun Tzu's point about avoiding urban, I still think still pertains. And I think if you can seize an urban area through a combination of um, information psychological operations, that is absolutely your optimum. And of course, you know, if we look at the last 10 years, the ISIS, I would pr propose, were the finest force at essentially bluffing their way into urban areas. I mean, they took um, Mosul, you know, there's a 15, at least 15,000 Iraqi soldiers in Mosul and 1,500 ISIS troops turned up on pickup trucks and used a brilliant kind of informational campaign to 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 get rid of them without hard without barely firing a shot. Yeah. Um, and they did similar stuff in in Ramadi and Fallujah. So, I mean that that is the acme. And of course, in many discussions with the US or the British military, British Army, I mean people have suggested, oh well, you know, we'd use that's what we we, we would do. And yeah, it's the ideal. But of course, there comes a point in any war where the enemy won't have it. They will actually stand and fight. And at that point, um, it's not that psychological operations become, they still may become a central part of what you're trying to do, um, information operations. So, but you, you've got to actually fight for the cities. And at that point, um, siege conditions start to, um, uh, start to um, uh, emerge and crystallize. Now, the problem there, you, you've pointed to one, and I, I think it's an absolutely critical one. The trouble is, especially especially in larger cities, but even, you know, you've given the example of Bakhmut, absolutely. And we don't know how many of the Ukrainian International Legion, yeah. which has provided a very significant force to the Ukrainian army, um, also was fighting in Bakhmut. It's just not it's just not known. But some of the casualties, some casualties for that International Legion were in that in that area. So the presumption is that the, the Ukrainians also use some proxy forces. Yep. And absolutely. Um, why is this? Because urban warfare is an attritional slow fight in which um, significant casualties are very likely, especially if you're in the attack. Um, and therefore, with small professional forces, they turn back into early modern or medieval forces where proxy mercenary elements slash mercenary elements become critical. Now, in fact, I think in many cases in urban fighting, even if a military force wanted to keep it a state on state fight, they won't be able to because militias will be in those urban areas, especially in an urban area of any size, um, militias, um, you know, self-generating forces from the civilian population will be there. Uh, and will start to fight. So uh, it, not only will states, as you so eloquently said, you know, what, want to use this to preserve their professional core, but actually those fighters will be in, present in the city. So you end up with a, with, a, with a fight that, you know, localizes, as I've said, in terms of this phrase, the inner urban micro seed, yep. it localizes into a highly localized, intense fight. But it also becomes this strange heterogeneous fight with different elements 
either in that local fight or different elements, that local micro siege, or, or, or those different hybrid proxy elements, quasi-militia elements, actually engage in sort of supporting activity uh, in a number of different places. I mean, the obvious example of that would be something like Mosul, yep. uh, where there was quite a lot going on that was not the Iraqi army, and some of it was helpful, and quite a little of it, frankly, was not. Yep. Um, so, so what you end up with is a is a is a is something that you know is looks like a sort of early medieval, uh, early modern, or a medieval force. I.e., quite heterogeneous. It's it's allegiances and aims, not absolutely Clausewitzian. I.e., their political goals aren't necessarily aligned with with the with the with the states that is providing the key enablers and the key and the key force elements. Um, and I mean, it's a question also. I mean, I think the fight that's about to happen in Gaza will be interesting in that way. Certainly, it'll, the defense of Gaza, I think, will be Hamas plus, plus, plus yeah, some yeah. hybrid yep. elements. Yeah, I think the sure. IDF, the IDF, I think it's such an important fight for them, whether we like it or not. I mean, the, the ethics, the legality, the politics of it. In pure military terms, I think the IDF will have the forces and will, will, there won't be any hybrid element beyond their sort of intelligence elements and, and more special forces elements. But, you know, I th but I think that's kind of in the attack. That's the exception yeah. uh, rather, than, rather than the rule. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the the Mosul part there, as you were talking about those those sub-state actors and and uh, local actors that, that stepped up and, and helped play the game because it was a... Uh, having been there for the last couple months of the Battle of Mosul, um, working at the headquarters that was running that campaign, the the the, the popular mobilization forces, and then the the Shia militia groups that that were sponsored by Iran were uh, were helpful, but then also quite problematic, as you said. Yeah. Um, and so, when we think about the the future of 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 warfare and this urbanization and this attritional aspect of it. I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks will say that artificial intelligence and autonomous systems uh, will obviate the need to do a lot of, of what we've just discussed, because it's that magic pixie dust that you can sprinkle on things. It's like deception. There's a deception fairy that floats around and it's like, oh, we've deceived our way into being able to do this great maneuver campaign. And I think AI and autonomous systems in many regards fall into that same thing. Um, and obviously I'm being a bit facetious here, but what do you think uh, based off this big push on AI and autonomous systems and drones and, and the dehumanization uh, conceptually, at least of warfare, how do you think that's going to affect command moving forward? Um, well, this is an interest. This is a very interesting question. I, I, you know, I perhaps take a sort of more extreme view on this, but it's a view that actually is coalescing in the work of some other scholars, and I'm thinking people like Ben Jensen and um, John Lindsay here. Um, so first of all, I separate the issue of AI from remote and autonomous systems. Um, AI will, I mean, autonomous systems already exist. Yep. I think they will increase. Remote has become completely ubiquitous. I think some of those remote systems you know, the U.S. Army, for instance, has been exp experimenting with with um, some drone swarms to out, out, out at NTC last year and this year, and they've got some interesting capabilities. But so, but but uh, so, but I would separate 
the autonomous weapon systems from AI. And my own take on autonomous weapon systems, and let me focus on land warfare and and urban here, and then I'll come on to this issue of command. I, I actually am I'm profoundly underwhelmed by the impact that they will have. Um, I think there'll be some autonomous, more autonomous systems. I think autonomous drones of some sort, maybe some un, uh, some ground uh, robotic vehicles, unmanned ground robotic vehicles will also appear. What do I think will their effect on urban warfare will be? Close to zero. I think that their, their, their likely capabilities, they'll be very difficult to program. Their range, their payload, their functions will be very limited. There'll be another weapon system, that's it. Um, now, but does this mean that AI in terms of command will be sort of irrelevant? No, not at all. So I do think that artificial intelligence has already begun to play actually a significant role in the command of military operations. Um, so what, what, what do I mean here? Well, what does AI do? What, what's its key function? Its key function, and you can see this with Google, Amazon, Microsoft, is it's used to process data. I mean, that's that's the that's that that's the 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 milieu in which it exists, and it, it can do things to data. It can process quantities of data, see things in data which humans couldn't even begin to do, even if they were given an infinite time span. So, what date? What AI does is to enable if you get the right data, it enables a command to see more accurately, more deeply, and more quickly across a battle space. Uh, and that is a really significant thing. Um, and we've already seen start the st this starting. I mean, it's this, so we could start to see this crystallizing with um, the Joint Special Operations Command in Baghdad hunting yep. uh, Zakawi. Yep. And it's, it's both increase, it's becoming more common, intensifying, proliferating, increasing. You know, it's now in the public domain. U.S. support for the Ukraine war operationalized this use of AI to give yep. a better targeting system. Uh, I, I mean, it's now you know now seems totally relevant, but the IDF's Operation Guarding the Walls in 2021, which was their last intervention into Gaza, eleven day uh, strike against. Hamas and it's um, pretty massive rocket attacks, 4,000 rockets in about 11 days, nothing compared with what's just happened or what is happening. Uh, but the IDF used a similar system of processing data from multiple sources, open source, satellites, encrypted and de-encrypted messages, fusing it together with the help of artificial intelligence to provide a better intelligence picture. So what AI is, is helping commanders is to see and to target and to plan more effectively. I mean, these are the key, these are two of the key functions. I mean, in my view, there's four functions of, of AI, but let's talk about two here, which is planning and targeting. Mm -hmm. And it's already started to have that effect and will increasingly have that effect. Does this make command easy? Does it mean, you know, there's been discussion of sort of automating military decisions? Not at all. So the key bit, the AI only works, the algorithms only work insofar as they're tied to very specific problems, which the commander and the staff have got to work out. So the issue of mission definition, key, key element of command, 
AI is not going to help you. AI does not help Jeff Bezos work out which company he wants to put out of business next week. <laughs> um, it helps him to, once he's decided which company, it helps him to integrate with those customers directly and to recognize the patterns in the market. It's very important. But it doesn't help the Bezos's S group to actually decide policy, similar with the military. Commanders will have to actually define a mission. And if they want to use um, AI, they're going to have to be really precise about it. Um, even when it gets down to more specific questions, um, AI still requires human, human input. And one of the things here that makes it more difficult is one of the human inputs it requires is input from civilian contractors from the tech sector who come under command of the military posing, a, I think, a very significant novel problem to military commands today. How, how do you command a staff, a headquarters that now consists not just of military personnel, of staff officers, but tech expert, computer programmers, data scientists, data engineers, programmers, who are going to be an intrinsic part of your team. And in the IDF and indeed in 18 Airborne Corps, we know yeah. running um, the, the Security Assistance Group Ukraine, um, that these are issues that the commander had to come to terms with. So AI will be crucial because in, in the competitive arena that is war, you want to be faster, quicker, more lethal than your opponent and processing data from these, you know, unbelievable quantities of data from just from from the sources, geo sources from satellite alone, the quantity of data that you can process and that you have available, absolutely massive. You need it. You want it to be competitive, to have competitively advantaged. But it's going to be hard to hard to do. So actually, the irony is this is AI used properly will make militaries more effective, more efficient, but it's going to take one hell of a lot of human effort to get there um, to actually do it. So it, it actually, for me, it complicates the command yeah. problem rather than um, it turns us all, you know, it's not going to be Hal is not going to be yeah. telling Lieutenant General what to do. That's right. Not at all. Yeah, I think that the, uh, that, that so one point and then a question, uh, a branch question there. So for me personally, looking at this problem, I think that data uh, that what you just described and the amount of data that we'll be able to collect and be able to sift through, um, that in itself is, is a problem and it's a new vector of warfare or maybe even not, not a new vector of warfare, but it's expanding on existing information, uh, operations, but in a way that's far more, uh, far more troublesome because as we try and overemphasize the role that AI and all these machines are going to be able to, you know, sensing and space and all the the cyber uh, capabilities um, being able to collect information it's going to create uh challenges with 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 handling data in terms of there's going to be so much data that you can you can poison a system you can poison the enemy or an adversary's ability to understand what's going on by um by manipulating the data that's on the uh that's that's just out there uh, against an adversary. And so I think that that's something that we haven't really looked at closely. And I think, I, you know, you, you mentioned 18th Airborne Corps. Um, I saw over, I think it was last summer, they had stood up a, a, a data warfare company. And I think that that's probably, I don't know what they do exactly, but I think it's something that's probably uh, really interesting to dig into. 
But that was my comment that uh, I, I think is uh, driving the next question here, and that is based off this increased uh, belief in the importance of AI and autonomous systems, we're, we're putting a lot of faith into the, uh, the idea of long-range fires, precision strike, and sensing being able to, uh, to answer all our problems, I'm using air quotes, all our problems uh, in, in contemporary and future armed conflict. So uh, based off that and based off what you were just saying about uh, AI and, and its, its assistance with targeting, do you see that it's potentially uh, turning the way that we understand the collective we, whoever that is, however you want to bracket that, is it turning that into uh, us seeing war as a targeting process? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. Um, in a certain sense, in the deep, yeah. And and this is this is where AI really start. You know, AI as a processing, a data processing technique, uh, I think, really does start to become significant. Um, and that the deep is is able to be targeted in a way that I think is quite distinct. I think the ranges and the precision of the strikes into the deep you know, do transcend things that we've seen before in the past. I mean, obviously, that range of that deep strike has been increasing, yep. uh, you know, since since the rise of artillery, you know, so the ranges started to increase very significantly around 1850. Um, but that 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 deep that deep battle space um, becomes open to targeting in a way that I think is quite, 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 you know, it's not like kind of existentially new but it's 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 a it's a new capability that uh militaries are able to support and i think you the russo ukraine war obviously supported closely by last year 18 airborne corps yep. you know i think some of the targeting they've shown there, targeting of you know they killed whatever 30 to 40 russian generals hit many command posts hit logistic dumps you know they've hit targets that are really quite strikingly precise i mean both in terms of location and time so the strike that i thought was really instructive was the one that that wounded valery Garasimov, yeah. the yeah. russian chief of, chief of the defense staff um i mean you know, so that happened in a village just north of Izium. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that they, they identified that headquarters full stop. Yeah. I think it's more than a coincidence that the, they got it got hit when he arrived. Um, I, I find that. And I think that's, that's that, you know, I'm not saying that headquarters did get struck in the past, but I think the regularity of that and the depth of those strikes is, is new. Now, the interest, so it does, it does extend that, that battle space backwards, that deep battle space gets extended. And I think it does become more decisive. I mean, the US military since airline battle have tried to make the deep battle more and more decisive. And I think in, in the Russo-Ukraine war, I think we could say, well, some of the U Ukrainian strikes have been, well, decisive is a difficult word, but certainly yeah. created opportunities for the close battle that in the past, armored brigades and divisions would have to fight their way through a close battle. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the current environment, they've been given opportunities that they would never have been given. Um, so it's not that the close battle is irrelevant, but the close battle has facilitated in a way that I think the shift is towards the, the, the deep. And if you've got two sides fighting deep and close, whoever travails in the deep is likely to prevail in the front. I mean, the current... I mean, those complaints about 
the Ukrainians not 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 seizing opportunities. I mean, I it's very difficult for me to comment on them as a civilian non-combat yeah. veteran, but I think inferring between the lines, the concern was that opportunities had been created in the deep, which were not seized in the close. So that's quite to me, that's quite interesting. And that is it's not that AI is causing that, but it is contributing to a processing, a targeting function that is is really critical. Now, this comes back, actually comes back right back to our point about urban warfare. Yeah. But you can only target in the deep in that way. And a trip forces so sort of catastrophically in so far as you hold terrain and you know exactly what I'm going to say here, you hold a network of urban fortresses so that that a space of 500 kilometers now becomes the glacis on which you're able to decisively attrit your enemy. Um, and, and, and so the two things for me come together that not, you know, so here's the thing. Data, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but apparently data travels down fiber optic cables at the speed of light or close to the speed <laughs> of light. Yeah, yeah, apparently it does. But here's the thing. The data moves at the speed of light, but it's actually adding to warfare, which is glaciating into medieval tempo, yeah. really slow fighting. And that's the kind of weird paradox that I think we've all scholars and military professionals have got to get our sort of imaginations around that, you know, I mean, there's all these phrases, liquid war and sort of, you know, and 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 these phrases are, are about the sort of incredible acceleration of war. Yeah, in a way, weirdly, you've got all this technology that's incredibly rapid. And what's it done? Yeah, Actually, it at the sort of campaign level, it slowed everything down. That's right. It just gums everything up. That's what I, that's, yeah. that's, I like that uh, data paradox. I think you may have coined a, coined a phrase during this conversation. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that from you and write about it in the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right. So last, last thing here before we close out, uh, cause we're, we're getting close on time and I want to let yeah. you enjoy that sunny, that sunny weather you got behind you. Uh, so right, yeah. in recent conversation, I have heard, that the, um, from a good source, reliable source, uh, that the National Training Center, the U.S. Army's National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California, where I was uh, stationed many, many years ago as a tank company commander with the, uh, with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Their goal, uh, so apparently you've gotten under their spur, uh, and their goal, um, your, your comments on maneuver warfare have, have riled them to the point that you have become the... Uh, the thing that they are trying to disprove, they're trying to disprove the hypothesis that maneuver is dead. And so I'm just curious, uh, based off everything we've discussed thus far, uh, what, what your, what your thoughts are on that, on that comment? Well, I mean, I gotta say, I'm probably normally quite a sensitive person about people criticizing me, but actually I take this as a, I am actually really, um, very flattered. Um, that an effigy of my own self is now burning. I've been inside um, uh, uh, Razish and it's yeah. sort of been burned in the central sort of marketplace of Razish. I mean, I take it as a as a as a vindication of sociology and myself as a <laughs> sociologist. What do, what do I think? Well, I'd be really interested. I, I'd be really interested in the um, results. I mean, obviously, I'm skeptical. Um, 
and I, I'm also skeptical of finding because one of the things I would caution NTC about is Rizishi is a really good area. But when I went, so I went in May as part of the 40th Infantry Division's Urban Operations Planners course, uh, Major General Waldrich organized. It was a great trip, great day. I was really surprised how small Razish was. I was so what I would caution is um, you uh, uh, so the brigades running through there can potentially maneuver around the flank and there's that valley that comes up behind Razish, which lots of, uh, of the training brigades um, use. I think what's called Snakebite Valley or something. I can't remember no, the exact name. Uh, I, yeah, it's it's just it's just there's a there's a kind of gorge, a reentry that runs yeah, yeah. up and gives cover. I'd um, have to dig on my map. I've not been there in a couple of years, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I forget all the names. Because Rizish itself is so small, I would be cautious about drawing um, really significant conclusions about because the, the possibility to maneuver to inconvenience an urban area. Because there, a brigade, I mean, it's like to get treated. It can outflank um, on this gorge to the right and the, the plain to the left. It can outflank Razish in a way, uh, and it can get up to the mountain behind it, the little hill behind it, yeah. um, in a way that would not be possible in a proper urban area. So, you know, that that is a tiny village. Um, even Bakhmut, which is small, is is the, the 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 ground area. So, what I would caution is against is be careful. I really look forward to seeing those experiments. Is be careful drawing conclusions about maneuvering around um, an urban area which would not pertain with a bigger urban area or an urban area in a different topography. My second point is, I'll be interested to see. If someone try maneuvering through um, Razish, because if you look at the building structures, at a certain point you have to take some key buildings, and the way they're taken is by massive firepower and then a breach and a clear. Mm -hmm. So for me, well, that you know, I, I you know, maneuver for me is uh, a large scale movement to the flank and the rear, a massive firepower assault on a strong point, and a breach and a clear very important form of warfare yeah. absolutely critical but it's not maneuver i mean you could call it maneuver if you want but i would not i would call that an attritional siege operation when it's executed well you preserve your own force and destroy yeah. everyone inside the fortified strong point so you know those would be the two caveats but i am i am honestly flattered i think it's a key experiment we need to have um i'll, I'll, I'll be interested the other point i'd make is we're about to see a cataclysmic urban fight of two forces which are wildly mismatched, the IDF and Hamas. I'll be interested to see if IDF can manoeuvre through Gaza and its tunnel systems. I think they'll go for a series of bite and hold operations. Uh, if they're going to, you know, the purpose seems to be clear the area, stop the rocket attacks, stop the rocket launching size, uh, 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 sites. I, 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 so that is a a material data point, which I think we should pay some serious attention to. Yeah, as, as as I've discussed and we've discussed in the past too, I think that in this discussion of maneuver and and, and as you're talking about uh, Hamas and and is and the IDF's plan moving forward, I think it's important to understand that it's it's not your it's not your preference on how you fight. It's it's 
what do you have available? You know, what are the conditions and what's the situation? And in many cases, like you're only a small fraction of that. Your preference is a small fraction of that. If you don't have the components and conditions to do a certain form of fighting, uh, you can't, right? And if the situation dictates a certain form of fighting, you have to do that too. And so I think that that's, that's critically important. Then also to, to the point on the National Training Center, I think it's also important to understand that in most cases, what's out there fighting is, is a brigade against a regiment, right? And so the regiment in Black Horse is replicating, you know, a force that's far greater than what it really is. But at the same time, like a brigade exercise is a brigade exercise and not everything that you do and learn at the brigade level is scalable to the division and core level, right? The, the, the physics of all that and the geospatial considerations are different. So uh, to your point on that too, I, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that works and um, if they can actually disprove your hypothesis. But with that, uh, Tony, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it has uh, been a, an absolute pleasure. It's been good to catch up with you. It's been a while since we've been able to chat, so it's been good to chat. And uh, is there anything as we close out here, I'll let you, uh, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything you're working on or anything that you'd like to plug before we break here? Well, I don't know whether to plug. I'm just writing, as, as you probably inferred, I'm just, try, I'm just in the middle of writing a book on AI and the transformation of, uh, you know, armed forces, transformation of warfare, uh, which talks to a lot of the themes we've, we, 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 we've, um, we've talked to. And hopefully that'll be, you know, I'll finish that early next year and that'll be published back in the next year. So that's what I've been working on, uh, which has sort of kind of answered some of the questions. But as I say, it's absolutely, it's always a pleasure to talk and, and I'm honoured and flattered that you've invited me onto the podcast. So thanks so much. It's, re it's really great to talk. All right, Tony, thank you. And uh, once uh, the NTC proves us wrong, we'll get them back. Uh, we'll get back on here and talk about uh, the results of that test. <laughs> I'll wait my invite out to <laughs> Fort Irwin. All right, thanks. <laughs>